Well, we have been in this series called Kingdom Wisdom. We have been studying the Proverbs and seeing how the kingdom wisdom that God has shown us in the Bible is so opposite of what worldly wisdom tells us. And uh, today, we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 23. And so if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab the black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have a Bible uh, at home, just go ahead and take that one. That's our gift to you. That's going to be on page 498 of that black Bible. And I don't know what number it is in your personal Bible, so you can find it. We're going to be reading from Proverbs 6, and here at Flourishing Grace, because we believe that this is God's word that he has given to us and it instructs us, will you stand, if you are able, in honor and in reverence of the word as it is being read? Proverbs 6, starting in verse 23, says this, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life to preserve you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart and do not let her capture you with her eyelashes. For the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife None who touches her will go unpunished. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, our intended purpose for this series in, uh, in Kingdom Wisdom was to make obvious the differences between the values of the world versus the values of the kingdom of God. Now, so often the values of the world in our culture are about self-sustenance and self-satisfaction and self-care and self-love. Whereas the kingdom of God values the self highly, but also values God and others even higher than we ought to value ourselves. Now, Jesus demonstrated these values perfectly and fully when he fulfilled the prophecies of the one who was promised to redeem others at the cost of himself. Now, 1 Corinthians, it says this. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the summary of the rest uh, of this particular passage teaches us that to the non-believer, to the skeptic, and to the fool, kingdom wisdom is foolishness. That kingdom wisdom has no root in whatever perceived reality we experience. It is hogwash. It's useless. It's outdated. It's antiquated. And yet, to the believer, to the God-fearer, to the Jesus follower, it is the power of God. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God are at complete odds with one another. And there is perhaps no area of kingdom wisdom that is more antithetical to the worldly wisdom than the biblical and kingdom ethic on sex. That's right. We're talking about sex today. I know everyone like clinched up a little bit. They're like, oh, I got to get out of here or whatever. We're going to talk a little bit about it, okay? It might not be the sermon that you expect, though. Now, you don't need to be an extremist on either side to see that these things are at odds with one another, the world and what the Bible says. You don't need to be a Bible-thumping theologian to see this. You don't need to be a queer rights activist to see this. When it comes to sex, nothing beats it out for relevance as to why the world is at odds with the church. Now, many of us have seen this play out in our workplaces. 
Many of us have seen it work out in our places of play, like the movies or coffee shops or the malls, and many even in our own families and homes. In fact, many of us have not only seen the effects of sexual brokenness, but we've experienced them. Whether we have done something or something has been done to us, sexual brokenness has affected every single one of us. Now, just a little background on me. Um, The Lord has done work to repair and restore my family now. Uh, I came from a, a broken family. Now, broken families are often the result of sexual sin. I was, expo- I was exposed to pornography uh, by an older teenager at an elementary age. That was a sexual sin that was committed against me. And from there, I fought a pornography addiction for many, many years. And after that, you can imagine how dirty and soiled I felt walking into a prudish, small Korean Baptist church as a teenager. Now, I, I never remember, I, I, I remember never talking about sex in church. I remember barely even talking about it with my family. And so all I heard about sex in church was something about how sex before marriage is a one-way ticket to hell, and if you practice homosexuality, that is of the devil. And that is all I remember hearing. Now, both of these things, there is biblical truth in them. What those things are just shadows of what the Bible teaches about those things. But my inner guilt and my shame, it festered and bubbled underneath the surface because of the purity culture that I grew up in. Now, it wasn't until a few bold Bible teachers that I was listening to had the courage to not only address sexual sin, but to present a path to healing that I saw some semblance of victory over all those things that I had done and all the things that had been done to me. And my hope is that it is in those steps that I follow today. Now, why, why do I bring this up? This is a topic that makes people squirm. It's an issue that, that can bring up memories of pain and sorrow. So why risk peeling the scab off the wound? Why talk about it when we'd rather brush it under the rug? It, it's for this reason, friends, that I believe that the church, generally speaking, but I believe that the church is chronically guilty of addressing poorly or not addressing at all the underlying issues beneath sexual sin in all forms. I believe that the church has made enemies of the behaviors of people rather than enemies of sin and Satan. And I believe that the only true healing of wounds this deep come from Jesus, that he is the only one with the power to renew and repair fully the devastating effects of sexual brokenness. But to experience that, to experience his healing, we need to listen to what he says about sex. Not just hear it, but actually listen. So let's listen to what God is getting at in his word. Now remember, I said this before in my last sermon, in the Proverbs, this is Solomon speaking to his son, but it is also God speaking to us. Now, I find the Proverbs on adultery uh, adultery interesting, and if I'm being honest, maybe a little bit hypocritical considering their source. Um, King Solomon, he was known as the wisest and richest king of all the kings in the Bible. And when he became king, uh, God asked him what it is that he wanted more than anything in this world. And what did Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Wow, what a request. And this request, it pleased God so much that not only did he give him wisdom, 
but he gave him riches beyond all compare. Now, Solomon had no lack for knowledge, no lack for comfort. And for a while there, he was actually a very good king. But the thing is, Solomon had sin hidden away and treasured deep in his heart. You see, Solomon became a slave to sexual sin. Specifically, he took on many wives. We know that this was sinful because the Lord specifically forbade the kings of Israel to take many wives. In, Deuteron- in Deuteronomy chapter 17, it commands the one who is king to not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Solomon did what was explicitly wrong in God's sight. That is sin. And I actually believe that Solomon knew that this was a struggle as he was writing these Proverbs. I mean, don't you think it's maybe just a little bit strange that everything in the Proverbs are personified as women? Have you noticed that? Everything in the Proverbs is personified as a woman. He He says lady wisdom, describes wisdom as lady wisdom. And he says that lady understanding raises her voice. Then he speaks about the adulteress. And then he says the woman folly. It seems that even in his wisdom, Solomon had women on his mind. And I may be reading into it a little bit, but I believe that every small sinful thought that we have wishes itself to be the fullest and most devastating version of that sin. Now we see this come to fruition in 1 Kings, where we see the infamous statistic that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Wow. We're not supposed to be impressed by that number, by the way. We're supposed to be disgusted by it, okay? 700 wives and 300 concubines. And what does the Bible say happened to Solomon? His many wives turned his heart away from the Lord. Exactly what God said would happen if he engaged in this particular sexual sin. And so my point is that when we engage or commit sexual sin, our hearts will be turned from the Lord. There's absolutely no getting around it. And if we think that we won't fall to it, if we think that somehow we're wiser than the wisest king outside of Jesus who has ever lived, if we think that we won't fall for it like him, that we're wiser than him, we are doing what the Proverbs is describing as carrying fire next to our chests, thinking that we won't be burned. It's like keeping a lion as a pet. One day, that thing will turn against you, and it will eat you. And this image is so very appropriate for us today, uh, because whether big or small, we've engaged in sexual sin. And the majority of these sins are done in secret, away from the glance of the watching world. We convince ourselves that no one will know, and what mama don't know won't hurt her. As long as we can stay hidden, as long as we can keep our secrets, no one will get hurt. And yet, the Proverbs ask, Can one walk on coals and his feet not be scorched? It's easy to keep a pet sin when it's concealed, but all things will be revealed in the light of the Holy One. Now, unfortunately, because of our time constraints, uh, this is not going to be a sermon on specific sexual sins. Um, We just don't have time for that. That happens over the course of a series, not just uh, a 30-minute sermon. Um, But it would be unloving and unclear if I didn't at least say that the Bible teaches very clearly that sex is a gift from God. It is a loving act between one man and one woman under God's lordship. This is what biblical and God-honoring sex is. This is our stance here at Flourishing Grace Church because this is what the Bible presents. 
Now, whether you agree or disagree with the definition of marriage or what is or isn't sexual sin, that's another issue. But I believe that how we talk about sexual sin this morning will be immensely helpful to you regardless of where you stand uh, in understanding the effects and the consequences of sin and how the gospel of Jesus redeems and renews us in the midst of it. Um, if you have questions about any of that or any about what we're going to talk to, I'd love to chat with you. Uh, you can come find me after the gathering and we can start there. Now, the definition of sexual sin seemed pretty straightforward in the Old Testament. And for many, many years after that, uh, but then a man named Jesus of Nazareth burst onto the scene and blew the top off of what people defined as sexual sin. In Matthew chapter 5, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches on lust. Uh, and I want to go ahead and invite you to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5. If someone finds it in the Black Bible, can you just yell out page number, please? Gosh, 759, page 759 in that Black Bible. So we're going to start with verse 27. You should see a subheading above that. It says lust. Here is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Quite simply, sexual sin is something that is a matter of not only the body, but also of the mind. It's not only of the body, but also of the heart. And the point that Jesus is making in all of this is that all of us have fallen short of the sinlessness that is required for salvation. He clearly paints a picture that we are all in need of a new mind, a new heart, and a new body. And his desire is that we take this seriously. Nowhere else does Jesus say to cut off your hand and throw it off. He wants us to take this seriously. Solomon's desire emphasized to his son is that he takes it seriously. So we have to think about how sexual brokenness and sin works itself out in our lives. The thought that I've been uh, chewing on for the past couple of months leading up to this Sunday is that all sin is three-dimensional. The effects of sin corrupt in three dimensions. It corrupts our view of self, it corrupts our view of others, and it corrupts our view of God. Now, how this three-dimensional structure works itself out in regard to sexual sin, I think is helpful because we can plainly see the distortion of these three things and in contrast what the renewing power of God by Jesus through the Holy Spirit enables us to do in fidelity, faithfulness, and restoration. So let's start with number one. We are restored to ourselves. That's what God has done for us. We are restored to ourselves. When man and woman were created, some of the very first words of the Bible say that this creation was very good. 
This is how they were described before sin entered the picture. And one of the primary reasons for this description was that the Imago Dei, the image of God, was finally imprinted onto Adam and Eve. Then enter sin. What was very good and what stood guiltless before God the Father became marred and distorted. And one of the most damaging ways that the Imago Dei was distorted and still is distorted is our view of ourselves. Quite literally, when we look at ourselves in the mirror, the thoughts that can flood our minds are quite the opposite of what, called, uh, what God called very good. And I think that many of us in this room know that when it comes to the unique area of sexual sin, very good is not only far from our minds, but maybe an impossible descriptor that we would describe ourselves with. The accusing voices inside our heads constantly berate us. It manifests guilt shame, fear, unworthiness. Whether we have been the sinner or we have been sinned against, nothing seems more powerful than the accuser inside our own head. Oftentimes, we believe that our valuation of ourselves is right and just. We see innocence lost. We see something of great worth being taken from us, and so we believe that we are less valuable. And some may even believe that they are completely worthless. Now, to exacerbate the problem, the world and our culture sends us mixed messages on what sex is and how it should be treated. On one hand, sex is simultaneously glorified and elevated to the point of our first and foremost and most important identities. And at the same time, it's demoted to an act that is as simple and primal as eating your next meal. No wonder there is so much confusion about sex in the world at large. And at the head of command in all of these demoralizing attacks is Satan, the evil one. He is described in the Bible as the accuser or the deceiver. And hear this, church. He is the only one. Satan is the only one who takes joy in the shame and guilt that we experience in regard to sexual sin. Nobody else does. Satan is the only one who takes joy in that. So what am I trying to say here? We see Satan described as a deceiver. He's described as a deceiver. So if Satan is a liar and he is telling us that because of our sexual transgressions, whether done by us or done to us, that we are utterly worthless, then shouldn't we do maybe just a little bit of work to see if the opposite is true? You see, Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I'm going to read that one more time. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Brothers and sisters, you bear the image of the Almighty. Imprinted into your soul is greatness. And when we begin to grasp this wonderful and beautiful truth, we start to view ourselves as God would view us, as fearfully and wonderfully made. When we allow God to restore us to ourselves, we begin to understand how much our God cares for us, how much he loves us. This is the dignity that has been given to every image bearer, every human being, no matter what sin we've committed or what sin has been committed against us. Moving on to number two, we are restored to others. We are restored to others. 
When we start to grasp the truth and reality that God views us as valuable beyond our own valuation of ourselves, this actually gives us the clarity of vision to see that this same value has been placed on every human being. All men and women bear the image of God. Therefore, all men and women are valuable to God. So often in our sexual brokenness, we commit the sin of devaluing others for the sake of our own gratification or our own pleasure. Now, in the most common of cases, this happens when we view pornography. In just a few clicks, we have digital brothels at our service. And the lie is that we believe that because this is such a private sin, is that because no one will know, no one will be hurt. This is the lie that we believe. Not only does this lie, which this lie originates from the pit of hell, it is a lie from the pit of hell, but not only does this lie cause us to sin against our own bodies, as Paul would say, but we use other image bearers for our sin. The men and women shown on the screen become objects of lustful desire versus living beings that are worthy of dignity and love and mercy. We convince ourselves that these are just pixels on a screen versus people who are searching for anything to numb the pain of the absence of the truer and better love that comes with Jesus. Though it'd be easy to call them sinners and be done with it, we learned in the first point that this is not how our loving Father deals with us. We are valuable, so they are valuable. We need restoration, so they need restoration. No one is deserving of being treated as a quick tool for sexual gratification. No one. Um, now, I, I have to take a moment to talk about uh, the more extreme cases in the area of devaluation um, in sexual sin. Um, th there are those of us in the room who have experienced the horrors of assault and abuse. And there may be some of you who are experiencing this today. And even if this was something that was done to you in the past, you still wear those scars. You still have those nightmares. You still can't trust people. And maybe you can't trust God. And, and this is something that, that I don't want to take lightly. It's something that I feared even talking about at all. But I knew that it would be unloving to not address it. And so I'm asking the Holy Spirit to encourage me so that you would know that I see you, that you would know that I hear you, and that I'm with you. But more importantly than that, that you would know that God sees you, that he loves you, and he is with you. What happened to you was that some coward, some fool didn't understand the value that God has placed on you. Their actions were wrong, inappropriate, violating in God's eyes and your own. And so I have two things specifically to encourage you, my friends. Number one is this. The Lord and his justice will have its day. The Lord and his justice will have its day. Our God is an avenger. Did you know that? Our Bible describes him as an avenger. Speaking of sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians in the, in the CSB translation of the Bible, talking about sexual immorality says this. It says, this means one must not transgress against and take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. God is an avenger of all wrongs. Whoever wronged you, whoever sinned against you, their reckoning 
will come. This is what the Bible promises. Number two for you, my friends. You are not defined by what has been done to you. You are not defined by what has been done to you. You are defined by what has been done for you. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross was to restore all things and to make all things new. And this blood speaks a better word than anything that has been done to you, anything you could tell yourself. God cares for you. He sees you. He gave his son for you. And he wants you to know that you are so valuable. Nothing can take away from that. So whether in the small cases or the big cases, our vision and value of others, when submitted to Christ, becomes worthy of treasuring. All of a sudden, we become worthy of treasuring. Others become worthy of treasuring. It becomes worthy of protecting. So we no longer use people for our own sexual means, whether it's a stranger or a spouse, but we treat them with dignity and respect. This is what God has bestowed upon them with his image. Now, if you've ever looked at the statistics, we know that men are the leading offenders in all these categories by far. When it comes to porn consumption, cases of abuse and assault, men are the leading offenders. And so I want to take a second and just speak to the men in the room for a moment. Men, it is not an accident that we were first in the creation order. It was not simply a cultural issue that the Bible taught on male headship in the home. God ordered things in this way so that we would bear the responsibility to protect. Everything that was created was to be under the loving and sacrificial care of men. This isn't a coercive care. This is not a domineering care. It is a care that bears the love of God. And when we choose to protect rather than to exploit, we are choosing God over Satan and how we see women. Now, specifically in regard to pornography, if you want some help in this area, uh, natural pastor Ray Ortland, he wrote a wonderful, small, short book called The Death of Porn. And in it, he talks about valuing women like this. This is what he says. The king of the universe created you, men, to stand as royalty, advancing his kingdom. Let that awareness settle on you. Now, here's your next step. She is royalty, too. God created every woman with high dignity and immeasurable worth, and no one has the right to degrade her since God has dignified her. Whoever a woman is in his sight, that's what she's really worth. So men, treat women with the dignity that God has given them. Treat them as you would a sister or a mother. Women, treat men as you would brothers or fathers. Love them the way God has intended you to love them, with value, care, and faithfulness. Lastly, number three, we are restored to God. This is our third dimension. We are restored to God. And really, friends, this is where it all begins. To live into the fullness of our first two points, restoration to God is the thing that empowers that. That's not to say that there isn't value in and of the first two by themselves. But we cannot be restored to faithfulness and fidelity to anyone fully without the miracle-working power of the only one who is truly faithful, and that is the Lord. He is the one who speaks the words of value upon us. He is the one whose image we bear. 
And when we engage in sexual sin, whether in body or in mind, we are not only devaluing ourselves and others, but we are devaluing God. In these secret acts, we are declaring that God doesn't have anything to do with it. And this is false. God sees what is done in secret. He cares about what we do with our bodies. Remember, he made us as very good. And so when we deny his design, when we disobey his commands, when we prefer ourselves and our gratification over anything else, we are acting out of infidelity towards ourselves, others, and God. But why is fidelity so important to God? Or rather, why is fidelity to God so important? Why do we need to be brought into a faithful relationship with him? It's because of this, because when we submit ourselves to his loving care and his perfect design, this is where the fullest and truest human flourishing happens. When we say no to devaluing God to the status of a magic eight ball or a weapon to be used against others and value him rightly as the Lord of our lives, he begins to orient your heart toward himself. And by this, our hearts are then truly oriented towards a right view of self and a right view of others. Now, the late David Pallison wrote a book called Making All Things New, and it's basically my sermon long form. So if you want more resources on this, you can buy this book. Uh, But this is what he says about sexual joy within faithfulness. He says, the Bible is frank about sexual joy within the circle of faithfulness. Fidelity first orients you as a child of God in relationship to your father. You come under his care and oversight. Fidelity then orients you as a steward of your own body. We all enter adult life with the gift of singleness. Many of us continue with the gift of singleness for many years, even a lifetime. And a majority of us will end life with the gift of singleness. We must be stewards of ourselves. Fidelity then orients you in relationship to your husband or wife if God subsequently gives the gift of marriage. God made sex, defines sex, evaluates sex, just as he made communication, food, family, work, money, health, and every good thing. You see, fidelity and faithfulness starts with God. From this fidelity flows all other fidelity. Faithfulness to God is the basis of all good and right sex in our lives because it is his view of us and his view of others that helps us to give dignity. What he says matters. Now, to finish up, to to practice sexual fidelity in all forms is to value men and women and self as God values them. When we act in sin and selfishness, we are devaluing in three dimensions. Where true restoration happens is when we take seriously the imago Dei, the image of God that is imprinted on every human soul. Everyone is worthy of dignity. Nobody should be made into a simple object of desire. Regardless of what you've done or what has been done to you, God loves you. He values you. He treasures you. And I want so badly for you to believe that deep inside of your bones. God has made you for more. He wants your pleasure to be deeper than a sinful moment of weakness. He wants your love to be a sacrificial, three-dimensional love. How do we know this? How do we know that this is what God desires? Because Jesus defended and loved the sexual sinners of his day. I'm reminded of two women specifically, the woman at the well 
and the woman who was caught in adultery and brought to the temple to be stoned. Both of these women were in desperate situations. One had been caught in public, and the other by Jesus in the secret of her heart. And in such few words, Jesus showed them that he loved them, that he valued them, that he saw them, and by his encounter, changed the courses of their lives. From their small moments with Jesus, they left understanding the value that was bestowed upon them even before their conception. How can we be sure that, value Jesus, that Jesus values us in the same way? Well, look no further than the cross, my friends. See him there in his foolishness, as the world would say. The perfect man, the one who perfectly loves. His love made manifest for us as he hung for the sins we've committed and the sins that have been committed against us. He gave his life as a sign of how much he values me and you, sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And though our sins were like scarlet and we couldn't do a a dang thing to wash ourselves free from it, the blood of Jesus makes us new. It renews us. It restores us. The stains that we couldn't remove, Jesus did by his blood. This is how much he loves you and how much he values you. By his complete and never-ending power, he is redeeming all things and making them new. There is no such brokenness that cannot be repaired by the creator and the redeemer. He loves us, church. He loves you, brothers. He loves you, sisters. Whoever needs to hear it today, Jesus absolutely adores you. He values you. I want to close by inviting our, our, our prayer partners up. I believe that the things that spark revival are confession and repentance of sin. And I want to make it very obvious that we are all guilty. We have all performed sexual sin in some way. My friends up here who are going to be praying for you, they are sexual sinners. We are all guilty of it. And yet I believe that God does something amazing, that he does something powerful in our lives when we are able to bring these things that are in the dark into the light. Friends, you don't have to bear this alone. You don't have to let shame and guilt have the final word in your life. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word than all of these things. And so I just want to ask you in the next moments to be bold. To be bold and come up and ask. You know, I'm not telling you to confess your deepest and dark, darkest secrets. That's not what I'm asking you to do. I'm just asking you to come up and ask for help. That you would meet with someone. Maybe you don't want to get out of your seat and come forward. I want to invite you to maybe pray next to your spouse. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your friends who you're sitting next to. But don't do nothing. Because God values you. He wants so much more of your life. The desert fathers and mothers, they they were uh, old saints who retreated from the world to avoid sin. And they have a collection of their stories. And, And this is one that I think is so beautiful and appropriate for us today. I talked about lust like this. Another brother was attacked by lust. He began to struggle 
and to fast more. And for 14 years, he guarded himself against this temptation and did not give in to it. After that, he went to the community, the people who were living life with him, and told them all that he was suffering. And so a decree was made. And for a week, they all fasted on his behalf, praying to God continually. And so his temptation ceased. You can be, you can be released from this sin. You can be released from the shame and guilt. But it requires you to bring it out into the light. And so please, friends, be bold today. Come and receive prayer. Come talk to me afterwards, but be bold. I'm going to pray for us and give us a moment just to sit on what we've heard today before we uh, take communion together. And I'm going to ask that God would, would give us his Holy Spirit to bring conviction and to bring the things that are in the dark into the light. Lord, help us to believe that you love us. Help us to believe in the value of the image of God that you have imprinted on us. Help us to know that we were not made for shame. We were not made for guilt. We were not made for fear. But we were made for joy, for redemption, for holiness. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts even in this time. That in our words and our actions and our thoughts, that we would be able to declare that you are the only one who's worthy of our praise. That we want to give every single part of our lives to you. Help us to look to the cross. Let us be inspired by it. You bore our sins so we don't have to, God. So help us to lighten the load today. Help us to trust you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name.